Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the sales leaders playbook. Today, we welcome to the soap studio, Cedric Pesh, the CRO of MongoDB, one of the most dynamic technology companies that is shaping the digital landscape. In this episode, we discover how Cedric inspires his leaders with purpose. This is his playbook. series the 33 CXOs we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man John McMahon a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC they were later reunited at Blade Logic which was acquired by BMC what happened next was truly remarkable these CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Oli Kune. Hey everyone. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Cedric Pesh. Cedric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, Simon. No pressure. <laughs> Absolutely none whatsoever. So Cedric, in the way of an introduction, you're currently the Chief Revenue Officer at a technology company which is truly loved by developers. It's a company which is so disruptive and really changing the digital landscape, MongoDB. Um, it's a real privilege and honor to have you on the show. And I want to just start off by just highlighting some of the amazing numbers, um, the, the staggering growth that MongoDB has experienced. So following a record-breaking quarter, breaking the $500 mark in, on, on the share price, market cap um, of just over $33.5 billion, 130% growth. I mean, it's staggering considering the company is only 14 years old, but it's still such an exciting time for MongoDB. There's so much room for growth and innovation. What, what can you tell us about this, Cedric? Well, it's listen. This uh, this is the same kind of conversation uh, I would have with uh, I had like five years ago with people. Uh, uh, you know, um, I had just joined the company and I was trying to recruit some people. I remember me calling someone, uh, one of my friends, to come and work with me, and it was pre-IPO. I think the stock price uh, was the price uh, of obviously would not the company wasn't public, right? It was. The board was defining it, I think, at $8 a share. And I remember that guy, I'm not going to name him, uh, who was telling me, you know, uh, it's sorry, it's too late. I just want to use, I want to join a very early stage IPO, uh, so a startup, you know, I want to get all the, the wealth out of, of growth, uh, of the potential growth. And you guys are, are too late. It was before the IPO, believe it or not, right? And then 
I remember having the same call a few months later at $16 a share. Then we went public, I think, to around $24 a share. I had the same call and I was calling that guy, really, really good leader. And he was always telling me the same thing, right? It was late last time and now it's too late, right? Um, I called him again at $60 a share. I remember telling him, you should join. This is just the beginning of a long, long wave. Um, that was the last time I called him at $160. He called me. Uh, it was too late. <laughs> I had already filled and put my leadership team together. Um, and now we are $500. And I still have people which tell me MongoDB is a late stage company. Uh, and, you know, the growth is behind us. And I'm still puzzled because the implication of that means that those people don't understand the difference between market cap and market potential. And um, MongoDB today, despite the fact that the company has obviously uh, an important market capitalization, um, is still probably anywhere between 1% and 2% uh, market share because we operate in a market which is humongous. It's a market which is, if we were having 5% market share, we would be bigger than ServiceNow, just to be clear, right? ServiceNow today, right? Wow. Uh, so, uh, the, um, uh, the, unlike uh, what many, you know, founders or, or companies pretend when they, they start their business, they are operating in a, uh, in, a, in a giant marketplace, which obviously everybody has the interest to say. At MongoDB, it's not difficult to prove, right? The world has turned into a software world. Uh, behind every application, <laughs> there is a database, right? And uh, MongoDB has moved a long time ago from being a, you know, a small niche player among others into being de facto, according to all, all the most accredited analysts, uh, the standard to build modern applications with far more agility than any other platform out there. Uh, in a far more simple way, giving back power to the developers. And, you know, there is so much headroom ahead. We see it in the market intuitively every day, right? Our deal size is just exploding right now. Uh, we are celebrating, you know, a million dollars, million dollar deals. A few, uh, a few years ago, we now hardly celebrate $10 million deals, right? Uh, so that tells you there is, you know, a lot of uh, momentum in the market and it's accelerating. In fact, if you look at the Atlas growth rate, despite the fact we are already almost a billion dollar business, the Atlas growth rate is uh, accelerating. It went from 78% to 80% to 82%. I don't remember the number specifically, but still north of 75% and growing, which gives you an, uh, like a good feeling about the fact that there is this momentum building up and it's increasingly easier to sell MongoDB into the market. That's the best way I can answer your question, Simon. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a remarkable um, you know it's a remarkable organization. I mean, it, it, it's it's very interesting. You talk about kind of market potential. Um, I suppose as we go through this, um, this 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 session together, it's really important to understand the, the mechanics which enable you to really cultivate that potential. Um, and we are going to really delve into some of those you know mechanics and and the playbook and you know how you're able to really you know, utilize because uh, it's one thing having the potential, but it's another thing actually having the the, the ability to scale an organization to, to realize that potential. So I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring that with you, Cedric, and going into more detail about that. Um, 
I suppose at this point, Cedric, you know, your journey has been an amazing, amazing journey. And I do want to go right to the beginning because during your time, you've had the privilege of working with some incredible leaders, some very, very inspirational leaders, many of which we've interviewed or spoken about as part of this series. But actually, I want to go back to your beginnings at PTC, which was a real baptism of fire. You joined one of the a hardcore sales organization as your first sales kind of gig. And you you discovered a leader which really helped to shape you. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and about that journey? Uh, yeah, it's been... Um... You know, I, I wish to tell you that uh, it was all about analysis and, and you know, intentional decision making. Uh, and <laughs> I think it will lie to you. I was actually, I had my passport to leave for India. I was in a lobbying company. I just bumped into a fax from my business school, which was talking about this company um, and which was saying that, you know, there were some numbers around on target earning, which I don't even know. I don't think I knew what was an on target. I hadn't made the difference between a commission check and a fixed salary. So, you know, I still needed to figure out a lot of things. Anyways, I went just out of curiosity, bumped into this company, um, went to whatever interview process, uh, met the guy who was the head of Europe at the time. Um, and I remember him asking me one question. He said, because uh, I was French, I was already living uh, in Turin, in Italy. And he said, where do you want to go and work? Because he was like, you know, he had positions everywhere in, in Europe. And that may be the, it's, I think it's the last time I interviewed anyways, but uh, that was the only time where I gave a good, a good uh, answer in an interview. I, I told the guy, wherever in the world, as long as you send me working for your best leader. And out of nothing, the guy actually, you know, walked his talks and sent me to Bologna, Italy, where uh, I met this uh, this guy, Carlo Carpanelli, who is the leader who had the most impact in, of my entire career. And I think it's very important in general, by the way, you know, early days when you are still young and malleable, you can even get destroyed by a bad leader or even an average leader or get inspired by a good leader. And I got really lucky. Uh, to bump into this guy. Think of him like, uh, you know, in 93, 94, 95, we were like 900 reps at PTC. And he, out of Bologna, Italy, so not the most, you know, advanced place you can think of as far as selling software is concerned. He was consistently the number one in the world uh, selling software, right? And then he got promoted as RRD and I just started to work with him. Um, and uh, I, um, I'm very grateful for that. Unfortunately, he's not in this, this world any longer, uh, but uh, he had an amazing impact on my life. Uh, still today, I've got, uh, you know, I use some of the lessons that I learned with him. What, what can you tell us about those, that kind, kind of those lessons, uh, Cedric? What, what were the early lessons that Carlo um, instilled in you? I I'll, can, I'll you know, I could speak about that for hours, but I'll, I'll try to be uh, obviously more concise here. You know, I learned very early to have healthy sales reflex. Um, you know, I learned that I made all the mistakes and got, um, I got, um, you know, coached the hard way uh, on, on those mistakes. I had to qualify really, really hard without any illusion. Um, I heard the importance of champion building as he was an amazing champion builder. 
uh, and many other things. But if I move away to from the you know pure sales basics one ones, which most people don't have the time to learn those days, uh, unfortunately, uh, or maybe leaders are not uh, not always in the conditions to add enough value. There's one story which uh, I remember vividly, which helped me immensely. I was uh, I remember being in this. Uh, I always say that story, so I'm, hopefully I'm not going to bore you guys, but. Hey, there is, uh, I am, you know, a few weeks in the job and it's really hard. I hardly speak Italian and I am, you know, my brother uh, joins me in, uh, in Bologna, Italy, and he, we spend the weekend together and, you know, at the end of the weekend, my brother and I go to dinner and he's on the, the day after he's leaving for a worldwide back, backpacking trip. And he sees my life in this, you know, crappy hotel in the outskirts of Bologna. And he's like, what the hell are you doing here? Why, why, don't, why don't you join? Why don't you join us and go for this uh, for this trip? And, you know, he got me in a moment of weakness. And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to resign and leave this company. It's too hard. I'm far away from anyone. I don't know anyone. I've never, you know, signed a contract. I don't see the end of it. Uh, it's too rough. So the day after I'm sweating at 7.30 in the office, you know, because I have to quit on Carlo and uh, and I'm daunting this moment. And I remember he walks to the door at 7.30. I'm hoping he was going to go in his office straight without coming to me. Uh, but because the guy is, is, is so intuitive and smart, he sees me there down in a corner and comes straight into my office, puts his eyes into mine and says, how are you doing? And, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I felt like, how do you know? <laughs> and uh, so I stopped mumbling and I tell the guy, you know, I'm not sure I made the right decision. I'm a little hesitant right now. You know, it's maybe, you know, sales is not for me. And uh, so it, it cuts me off and he goes, well, where do you live? And I'm like, you know, I'm this hotel, you know, you know it because I'm sending you my expense reports every week. So you probably know where I'm living. And he goes like, you should, you should go and, and find an apartment for yourself, settle in the city, take care of yourself. And when you're ready to go and come at work, you show, you come back. Right. And obviously I stopped him and I said, you don't understand the story. I don't even have the dumb, the money to make a dumb payment and start, uh, and start, you know, renting an apartment. And before I finishes, I finish, he writes a check and it's back to me and say, you take that check, you go and find an apartment. I've known the guy for like, you know, a month and a half, more or less. And I'm like, dude, I just don't do this kind of things. I don't take that. That was the largest check I had ever seen in my life, probably at that point. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Right. And he had that line, which is the, you know, what great leaders do. He said, uh, you and I told him, I'm not going to be able to reimburse you this money anyway. So you should not give me that money because it's going to be a problem for you personally. Right. And he had that line. He says, you take the check and you're going to reimburse me with your first commissions. And I'm watching him and I'm like, holy shit, you think that I'll ever be in the conditions to win, to earn any amount of money by selling software? And all of a sudden I realized that the guy believes in me more than I believe in myself. And, you know, take the check, get the apartment, tell my brother to fly back on his own and, uh, and, and, keep, going, uh, and keep going with Carlo for many years. The point I was, the point I remember and the lesson I remembered is that how much of an impact can a leader which understands the people which are around him or her can, uh, can have on people's life? At that point, I could have quit uh, feeling sorry about myself 
he could have ignored me. He had many things going on in his life as well, probably. He could have not detected what was going on. He wasn't obliged to write a check on his, on his own from his own bank account. Trust me. Uh, or he could have avoided finding the, the right words, which went straight into my heart and, and you know, give me the energy and the drive to keep going. Um, so I, that was a big, big lesson. I've got many others after that. Uh, Carlo was an example of courage, intelligence, um, and uh, a great businessman, uh, prob the best salesman I've ever met in my, uh, in my career. So I've got many other stories around him, but that's, that's one big one. Yeah. Cedric, at, at that point, obviously, the, 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 there's, there's a change in mindset, right? There's a change in mindset that somebody else believes in you. So it's now time for you to start believing yourself. But when does that actually change your belief system, right? When, when, when do you come out of that imposter syndrome and actually start believing in yourself? I don't think you, at least I'm going to, to talk maybe about uh, some more, uh, people might have different opinions, but I don't think you never get rid of your imposter uh, syndrome. And I think that um, clearly, you know, great leaders create the conditions to, be, uh, to help you finding your voice and be a more centered person um, and do things for the right reasons and not for the wrong ones um, and st stay being driven for the right reasons and not for the wrong ones. I still, though, I think that uh, the imposter syndrome, you know, even the most successful people in the world, and I, I know a few of them, um, I don't think this is something that completely gets, you know, gets eliminated. I think the awareness of being victim of it is very important um, so that, you know, you can start focusing on, uh, I think being aware of it helps you understanding faster how important are authentic relationships and how much of an enemy can your ego be. Um, yeah. And I think it's a journey, right? Uh, like there are moments where you feel you've been really good and there are moments where you feel you've been very weak, at least. <laughs> This is my world, right? And uh, and I think it's it's a journey that many leaders meet, um, and it's it's a struggle for uh, you know it's almost like a a quest uh, your life. You try to become a better, more egoless uh, leader. Not that it's easy, uh, but um, yeah. I, what I think though is that uh, bad leadership early days in your career can really hurt people and creates you know. Uh, I think bad leadership can really hurt leader, like people which could have become very good leaders over time. I think that early success obtained too easily is destroys. It builds huge egos. I see that all the time. While slower success obtained in a more thoughtful way uh, with some more scarves on your back uh, builds character. And... Um, and therefore, you know, someone always tells me there is no al uh, compression algorithm to experience. I think that this was what he means, right? Um, there, there are, um, there are uh, stages of your career that you have to go through. And uh, when you are through them, you don't see them always as a blessing. But then when you look back, you say, thank God I wasn't promoted too fast. Thank God I had the time to make that mistake. Thank God my leader was smart enough to let me fail and without uh, smashing me and destroying me, uh, mm. but keeping, you know, helping me and sustaining me and supporting me, uh, that you, uh, you look back and you say, thank God that happened. 
That's that's such remarkable insight. Um, Cedric, a lot of our viewers and listeners, um, you know, some of them can be quite early in their careers, you know, really trying to get their world, their, their head around this, this very competitive, very difficult, very hard, hard world. Um, and I, I suppose in terms of when you entered, it, it was the same. It was still hard. It was still, you know, just as difficult. But what were the things that you really focused on in those early days? I think a lot of people can relate with 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 perhaps some of the challenges and what you focused on early. I think in the early days, there was a mix of uh, me having big dreams for myself. Uh, in some ways, you know, I didn't know where I would end up, but I was uh, thrilled by, uh, you know, um, I wanted to make a name for myself, that's for sure. And therefore, I kept feeding that fire uh, with reading, uh, with exposing myself with to high quality people. Uh, so I focused a lot on uh, on on that. But it's, it wasn't like it wasn't an intentional process, right? Because the reason I say that is because I I think the drive in order to last uh, needs to be nurtured. Right. It's like uh, when you're in, in sport, you need to learn to manage your motivation. Right. And uh, in the early days, when it's just raw motivation and raw drive, uh, there is uh, you need to be able to also, um, especially as things get rough, to nurture and, and, and to feed that. So I did focus on that. I did. Re I did. I used to read a lot. I still do. But I, at the time, it was really almost like obsessional. I think I read everything you could find, which was related to my different jobs. Uh, I did spend a lot of time with high quality leaders. And I think also something which has been very exciting to me and is still now is the experience of learning. Um, the intellectual stimulation associated with learning and it might be, you know, learning new technologies and learning new business dynamics, new business models. It, it's also learning about others and understanding where they come from what is in their stories. For me, it's like a way of traveling almost, right? Uh, and, and, and that was early days. It was like very, very uh, important to me. I believe it or not, I don't think I've ever looked at my paycheck until I was like maybe in my 40s. Um, I do think that there is a bias in the industry uh, toward uh, an unhealthy relationship to this. Uh, to money. I don't think people build long-term successful careers by focusing on money. On the other side, most companies are there, especially startups. And, you know, when there is little to offer, uh, the, the only thing that you offer is you're going to make a million next year. And therefore, people start thinking, especially in sales, but not only that, you know, what success looks like is making a million of commission the following year, right? And by doing that, they get diverted from what's very important, which is building the foundations, keeping learning your craft, uh, enjoying the current experiences that you're having, finding people which are better than you to get yourself exposed to those people. And, uh, and, and you see many people which are running their careers because of that. In my, uh, like 25 years ago, whenever I was in the early stage of my career, that was still a problem, but far less acute, I think, than today. Mm. I think that's, um, yeah, really interesting. You talk a lot about choosing a, a leader, not just a company. I think that's one of the things that, that's one of your kind of key, uh, you know, your best advice that you offer people that come across your path, right? 
Yeah, I think a hundred percent. The you know even when you pick up a company, right? The reality is that ninety nine percent of the companies out there haven't nailed product market fit. Uh, there are still giant issues that they will have to overcome in the journey, just like us, like every company has giant issues, unpredictable things which will happen. And therefore, the single bigger factor for success in the long term is who is at the helm, in my opinion, because if the right executive team, the right, even your first line manager, the right leader is ahead of you, um, you know that high quality decisions are going to be made and therefore you have a little chance to navigate all these hurdles and issues that you will meet by definition. If the quality of the leadership is like average, uh, then they're going to make bad decisions and, um, and it's going to hurt you. It's true for companies, chief executives, even boards. I think it's true for as well an RD or a first line manager or second line manager, right? 100%, I think uh, you join a leader, you join a person, uh, you join a company as well, but to some extent, it's especially in the early days, it's not that important. I'll tell you that. You join an average company with an amazing leader, you're going to have a great experience in the first years of your life. Uh, working with that person are going to be foundational. You join a great company with a bad leader, and that's not going to work for you. And I think over very often, you know, younger generations tend to think in terms of, you know, what's the market share and what the market potential, which are still very important factors, right? But they forget about the most basic things. Who is the person which is on the other side? Um, not the second, third, fourth line manager, the first person that I'm going to work day to day with. And is this product actually a product? Will I lose my face with my customers by selling something which you know has very little product market fit? Or is there an issue with the product quality which is going to hurt my customers and therefore my name and my reputation? Um, these are questions which are very practical, tangible questions that you should have a very strong answer to when you before you join a company. Amazing. Amazing. So, so um, Cedric, obviously, it was a very interesting kind of early part of the career, you know, PTC, you went to Think3, um, and then after that, you kind of got back with the gang over at BladeLogic um, as part of a very, very high-performing European team. Um, just tell us a little bit about that, you know, what, what it was like to be part of that team and, and what was so, what was... Why were you such a good team? Um, I think it was um, obviously, you know, that's uh, you guys have done like already like 30 or 40 interviews. So I'm not going to say anything new. Obviously, the leader there was uh, was world class. Uh, I had known John, uh, who was a really good a friend of Carlo. And when Carlo passed away in an in a aircraft accident, obviously, it got us uh, it got us uh, much closer, and that was in these days, right? Um, Carlo uh, died in this uh, accident in, I think, 2005, and, you know, uh, so um, John called me and said, why don't you uh, join the band? Uh, and um, I don't think I made that decision too uh, intentionally in the sense that uh, I didn't understand what Blade Logic was about. I don't think I understood the tech. I just understood what John was able to uh, give me. And um, and I think like many of us at the time did the same thing, right? We joined, uh, we joined a good leader. 
maybe some of us did their homework a little better than others. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I was surely not aware of what was server management. I had, never, I had worked in the PLM industry my whole life, so it was very uh, mysterious. I went for a demo to see the customer face when they would see the product. Uh, because that was the only tool I had, unless I was becoming, you know, I, I will spend months understanding blend logic. I just wanted to see, you know, customer face. I think um, many of us did that, um, and the rest is uh, the rest is uh, the rest has been a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hard work. Uh, I started Southern Europe. I was alone here. Uh, my first pre-sales person was coming from New York. And uh, John was sending me those resources, proof of a good leader as well, right? Imagine you don't invest in Italy when you are a startup based in, uh, in Boston, you make 10 million of revenue. Why would you ever hire someone in Italy, right? It's like, it's like what, what the hell are you doing, right? There are like so many other markets where you start from, right? But uh, what he did at the time, he said, I'm going to take, I'm going to put uh, a leader in that market. I believe in the person. And, uh, you know, there's, I assume there is enough, there are at least a few companies buying, buying, you know, servers in Italy and therefore well, let's see if they can do something. And then he staffed me and gave me all the resources I needed and, and it was a good decision. That's another lesson, by the way, never invest in a market, invest in a person in enterprise software sales. Amazing. Love that. And then obviously BMC was quite a difficult time for you, Cedric, and actually, yeah. um, you know, by your own admission, it didn't quite fit with you. Um, and you kind of ended up leaving and taking some time off. But it was actually a very important time for you, was it not? Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, uh, Simon, because uh, it was because this is the part of, you know, I was talking about the scarves, which uh, build character, right? Um, and I think uh, my journey in that company, it was a giant turnaround substantially, right? Southern Europe was the most disastrous area for BMC. Uh, there were a lot of problems. I had to manage this turnaround. I went from a team of 15 people to a team of 250 people overnight and a lot of issues and and uh, and therefore this turnaround, obviously, like most turnarounds are, are complex, right? Especially when the labor laws are super super stringent. So I spent more time in court than uh, <laughs> selling software. Um, but um, it's it, it's not been, I don't remember those years like years of fun, back to your point. Uh, in fact, I ended up burning out and, uh, and quitting and taking time off uh, because I was uh, exhausted. But looking back, uh, you know, I think it's for me, it's been quite a pivotal moment in the sense that I went from, um, let's say, a magnified uh, sales leader to understanding that my way of operating uh, will never scale. And that I had used, I was the most intense version of what you can get to when you are, uh, when you try to do everything yourself substantially, right? And I made many mistakes. Uh, which um, if I hadn't made them, maybe it would not have helped me later on, <laughs> right? Um, but yes, that's that's been... Uh, that because it was so painful, it was a big lesson. I also learned the fact that if you don't take care of yourself, uh, you uh, we are not infinitely, you know... Before, I think before BMC assumed that with energy and drive and, and you know... Uh, 
willpower, you do everything and every problem is resolvable. After BMC, I realized that uh, that's not true. I realized that you, uh, we do have limits. We knew we are fragile as leaders. And as uh, you know, uh, highly you can think of yourself, uh, you have an obligation as a leader to protect yourself, to stay uh, balanced and healthy, um, and, uh, and to pick your fights because you can't fight everywhere, everything at the same time. And these are obvious statements. It's just that until you hit the wall, you don't understand them. Uh, and for me, that moment, uh, BMC taught me, uh, it also taught me what I didn't want to become as a leader, because I've seen a lot of bad things at play. And um, so in some ways, I'm grateful. It wasn't an easy ride, but in some way, I'm very grateful about those years. Um, I just think that uh, now that I'm in a different position, I, I, I will try and I try every day to avoid my teams to get through that. Because hopefully there is a way to learn and grow, which is not as, uh, as dangerous. Mm. Cedric, do you, do you now use those lessons that you've learned in how you coach and manage and mentor your leaders? Yeah, obviously, yes. Um, obviously, yes, right? Um, I spend uh, quite a lot of time doing that, the vast majority of my time doing that. And uh, I'm not a finished product, but yes, those, uh, those lessons, I use them. And also, I think the, the fact you get a little older, uh, you know, my son is 15 years old. So when I see a 25, which is in my SDR team or my BDR teams or in my inside sales team, I always think, you know, if he was my son, how would, you, how would I like his leaders to behave? Or my daughter, which is 14 years old, right? What kind of environment would I, I, would I like them to find in my company so that, uh, you know, they are pushed, they are stretched, they are treated like, you know, they should be. There is no greatness without... Uh, without pain, uh, but on the other side, there is, you know, fairness, there is attention uh, to the people side of things. And uh, they are not getting treated like cash machines, which just are there to produce software. I do believe that, you know, as a company, I do see my role like more like, um, I'm not in the software business, I'm 100% in the people business. And as such, you know, my job is to help people fulfilling their dreams. It happens that the technology we sell is so differentiated, so powerful, so more, so much more stable and helpful to our customers. And it helps building the most sophisticated applications out there. And those applications are helping the world. Many of them are helping the world becoming a better world. That it's easy for me to help people fulfilling their dreams, right? It's easy in the sense. Uh, it's easier than if I was, you know, selling a software which still is looking for its product market fit or when I sell it, my customer get pissed off at me. It doesn't help building confidence and swagger and, um, and big dreams for your, uh, for your own teams. Uh, the company is so amazing. The tech is so amazing that when people start selling it and understand it, they learn a huge... It's also at the intersection of many modern dynamics, you know, between open source, big data, cloud. We are in all these markets in once, in one single company with one technology, one platform. So clearly, uh, this is an amazing, uh, let's say, uh, vehicle to build confidence and build a new generation of sales leaders, which can 
which can thrive and, and enjoy the ride at MongoDB and after MongoDB, right? Uh, in At this stage of uh, my career, I just think about that like more, you know, I hope those people will become chief revenue officers those days, head of North America, head of Europe, head of Asia Pacific, whatever they become. Remember the days at MongoDB uh, with like hard but very satisfying. Uh, and um, yeah, that's the best way I can answer your question, I guess. That's one of your playbook elements, isn't it? Your vision for leadership is helping people achieve their dreams. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's about having that mission. It's not just about, as you say, being a cash machine and just being a function of a sales operation. It's about why do we exist? What is our north? What do we actually, what, what difference can we make? And then how does that enable us to achieve amazing things? Yeah, and I don't think it's just a philosophical, uh, you know, question. It's a very practical question. How can companies scale and become amazing companies if this is only about shareholder value? And it is about shareholder value as well, right? Don't get me wrong, 100%. Uh, but there is no way to produce value in the long term if it doesn't go through people thriving. And on the average, I'm not saying it's the case for everyone, right? Unfortunately, uh, we don't get it right all the time, but on the average, I think people do need to understand that what they do for a living is more than just, uh, you know, a short-term return on investment. There is more into that. There is more meaning, more significance into what we do for a living. It's about learning a job which, to a point that you'll never have to worry about getting uh, a, a well-paid job for the rest of your life which is very important because now, you know, economies are soaring, so to say, at least in, uh, in, in the tech industry. And uh, nobody, most of this generation hasn't seen what it looks like when these things turn around. And it will turn around, 100%. Everybody knows it. Uh, and at that stage, if you built your career seriously and consistently, it's all about freedom of choice. You don't have to worry about getting a job. Uh, companies need, still need to sell software. Uh, it's just that there are far less jobs. And by building these carriers powerfully, you know, we can really help people for the long term. And the other aspect of that is um, I have got this customer in the Netherlands. I make this example because we were talking about it a few days ago, but I have many others, uh, you know, during pandemia. So those guys are, are in the e-learning business, right? And they do provide a platform for uh, the young uh, Dutch, which, you know, go to school. And um, and when the pandemic uh, hit, obviously, uh, this platform got hit by millions and millions of additional people which were in need of learning by staying at home, right? That platform scaled in humongous proportions because Atlas was behind it and MongoDB was behind it. And the people who sold that deal were very proud of what they've done because you know the company, the chief executive of the company, uh, the... Um, developers which were there, everybody was very grateful because there was a sense of mission behind uh, scaling uh, these applications to help kids to go to school. We've done that with most COVID applications in the world. We help in the health industry. Uh, I was talking with this customer the other day where, uh, same story, they were grateful that Atlas was around uh, and that our sales team was around because we helped them building this amazing application, which is a substantial IoT application, which allows elderly people to stay home. Um, by putting sensors in their home, obviously, and detecting what behavior they have, if they have issues, and so on and so forth, right? That's a company with a strong mission. But they uh, told us, and the Salesforce was amazed by that, how powerful it was for 
for them to work with MongoDB and help scaling as well their application in a grateful way. So all of those things I tell these stories because when you are a salesperson, you do want to have to understand that what you are selling is is having a real impact in the world, right? I'm not saying you know we're not in the nonprofit industry, but still though we are not only in the database industry. We are in something much more much more than just a database uh, in the world right now. You talk about success to significance. Is that is that what you're referring to? Is that because that's I, one of your playbook? Yeah, that's elements. part of that. Uh, there is also the fact that uh, you know you grow a company from nothing to uh, to a billion of revenue. A bunch of people are making a lot of money in the process, and there is a moment where uh, you know these people are wondering, you know, especially if they hadn't internalized and asked themselves, why is it that I'm putting so much energy in my job today? they get to a point if they haven't asked themselves a question where you know money is not an issue or less of an issue any longer but still you know they they need to feel this fire inside them right so what's left if you always thought that you know your reason for selling software is making money and at a certain point money is not an issue or not as much as an issue it used to be um then many people are like okay what's next right and this is where I think that uh, you see it's very important as a leadership team and it's very important as a company. It's more true for MongoDB, but I have to assume it's true for others that there's more into it than just, you know, uh, being there to sell software. Selling software is an amazing, an amazing, it's, I, could have, I couldn't have thought, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's been more like a, a call or a vocation than, than a job, right? Uh, it, it's just, there is nothing more exciting than turning a no into a yes, to be clear. But then there is also the why am I doing it? And if it's only exclusively about getting a high big commission check and there is nothing else into it, it becomes very quickly, uh, you, you, it's too hard to have the resilience to excel at that job if you do it just for money. Mm. That's really what I think. Yeah, I think and I'm really interested in, I suppose, your mindset, right? Because you finished BMC 2012. You've taken a year off, time to reflect. I'm really interested to know what's going through your mind, your mind at that particular time, because if you actually have a look from 2013 up to where you are today to go from a Southern European VP to a CRO of MongoDB, were you consciously setting yourself in that year of time off to reflect, you know, the ambition to get to CRO? What was going through your mind and what was the journey you then set yourself? No. Uh, there was no, uh, actually, you know, uh, I'm probably the only chief revenue officer of a publicly traded company living where I, I think there is another one since a few weeks ago, uh, a good friend of mine, but it's very unusual uh, to have uh, someone uh, living uh, where I live in Europe and uh, taking over these responsibilities, which, by the way, we could talk about that later on, gave me a, a great a series of insights and a great series of lessons as well. But at the time, I wasn't even thinking about it. Uh, and the reason I wasn't thinking about it is because I was taking for granted that if you don't live in New York or San Francisco, you have no, you don't have a chance in this industry. Uh, and you know there is a whole conversation about diversity, true diversity, what we mean by diversity and inclusion, right? Uh, mm. Which I think is very often there is a, and I, I know a thing or two about that. But uh, at the time I was um, out of BMC, I was burnt out. I needed to gather myself. Uh, it took me months to do that. I needed to do some introspection about, you know, the ugly side of Cedric Pesh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It took a long time to <laughs> not to figure it out, but to accept it. Right? <laughs> um, I'm just I'm joking, but uh, not that much actually. <laughs> and then, um, and then um, I wasn't still wasn't good. I made a bad choice joining a company which uh, because I didn't do my homework. I chased a paycheck and didn't do my homework. Um, and very quickly, I figured that out. Um, and um, and then from there, the first uh, chance as a chief revenue officer was actually at Fuse. Um, Fuse offered me that opportunity as we were scaling because the European business was doing very well, and um, and therefore my boss wanted to take bigger a bigger responsibility. So I asked my family if they were open to move to uh, to the US, and we moved to uh, to Boston. I'm very grateful for that opportunity because it taught me a lot as well. But I wasn't planning for it when I joined Fuse. I had no no idea. That I will ever, you know, um, I will ever, um, I, w I will uh, ever been offered that opportunity, and um, uh, th that was very positive. But I'll tell you more when I joined uh, MongoDB. I had no clue as well about uh, becoming the chief revenue officer of MongoDB. My boss uh, it was a name, a guy named Carlos de la Torre. You probably know him. And um, I joined because, uh, you know, I thought the company was a great deal. Um, I wanted to go back to Europe. I came back to Europe working in my backyard, uh, staying close to my olive trees. And um, and even when I got offered the job and was asked to move back to the U.S., I declined it uh, because I wasn't uh, ready to move back to the U.S. I didn't want to do that. It was too big of an impact on my family. Thank God my uh, my boss, still my boss today, my chief executive officer, David Cheria, uh, is a very um, open-minded person which uh, is not easily convinced by dogma and goes to the bottom of things. And therefore, he said, I'm going to convince the board uh, to give that guy a shot. Uh, and, you know, since then we worked together, we had to place a lot of to organize ourselves well, obviously, because it has consequences, but I wasn't planning to do that at all. And um, I didn't even think that anyone would give me a chance to do that. Uh, that's a real story. <laughs> it's an it's an incredible um, uh, climb, you know, to, as I said, and I think it shows a lot of testimonial to your, you know, to your attributes and, and to your characteristic, right? Um, the transition from... GVP Amir in 2019 to CRO, how big a difference in two roles are they? It was a huge difference. I was already, uh, let's say I had already worked in the US, which helped me a lot, obviously. But there was, uh, you know, I found um, it was a huge difference. I'll tell you that I got very lucky that I bumped into the US uh, into a sales executive team, which was very smart and very good. My uh, head of North America, Paul Capombasis. Uh, it's just a great uh, person, first of all, uh, and wasn't, uh, he's Canadian, he wasn't dogmatic at all about things. And him and I uh, very quickly uh, clicked in. Um, that helped me immensely, uh, as well as others which were there, uh, which, you know, Jesse Greens and others. Um, I'm just blessed that I bumped into those guys. Still, though, there was this US versus Europe kind of, you know, a potential like who the hell are you to come here in the US and teach me how to sell software, right? That's for sure there was this dynamic. Thanks to those guys and the work we've done together as a team, I think we uh, overcame that, brought a bunch of people on board working all together and um, and, and and had great results. 
I also was blessed that here in Europe, uh, and I had an amazing leader as well, uh, which with whom I partnered a lot, and still to these days, you know, years later, we still, we're still going through uh, through everything. Uh, so that helped me a lot. Uh, the fact these two guys were there together with their teams was um, helped me overcoming those bigger challenges, like making sure Europe doesn't fall apart when you take a bigger job. You spend your time in a whole different set of topics which are not you know just execution and sales related and therefore if you don't have a good team everything falls apart i also think that uh, the early days of um, the fact that i had to work out of uh, europe and southern europe specifically gave me in the very early days a strong understanding uh, of compared to someone who lives in london or new york that there's no way to scale if you can't develop leaders locally with a very a strong understanding of a certain playbook which are autonomous or more autonomous so you know if you grow in an environment where you have your team with you all around you very close to you you can have an impact without having them you know every day you show up in the office you see them you feel them you can you know chat with them if you are like me and you've been living remote your whole life far away from everyone uh first you need to have a good health because you need to be on the plane all the time and the second thing that you learn is that the second thing you learn is how to manage your time and your priorities very carefully. Um, you need to hope to have a family which is patient and understanding. <laughs> and the third, the, the, the fourth thing you need to learn is to develop leaders locally and hire leaders locally, which you can trust. That you have to find it anyways as you scale and take bigger and bigger jobs. It's just like when you are in the obligation to survive in the very early days to um, develop a skill set around that. It ha it helped me very much when I took over the chief from your officer job, where we quickly find out that we needed to pay to put together playbooks which would scale globally, so that we could help people in their local theaters, even if we were not close to them. And by the way, this work has been very powerful when COVID happened. Mm. At the time, we didn't do it for COVID. But when COVID happened, everybody knew what to do without us, I say us, because obviously I wasn't the only one, being present every day and being close to the, being close to the field physically. I don't know if I answered your question properly, Oli. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's super interesting. And thanks ever so much for sharing that. I think this kind of comes to the operating rhythm we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, market potential versus market capital i think you know what you're talking about there is the sales rhythm the operating rhythm required to be able to thrive but also to scale um, and you talk a lot in your playbook about long-term success not just about medic or sales process you talk a lot about you know what's left and how do we actually grow so just tell us a little bit about uh, about some of that well you know when we talk about playbooks, I think it's very important, uh, and I made that mistake myself a few times, uh, but, you know, whether it's medic or a sales process or any playbook, at the end of the day, it's still a mean to an end. It's a tool. It's just like you want to build a boat or a ship. Uh, you don't build the ship for the sake of building the ship. You build the ship for uh, the possibility one day to, you know, go on the ocean and sail in the windy, in the winds and the waves. And, you know, that's why you build the ship, right? So um, while you build the ship, you use, you know, wood and you use, you know, a hammer and a screwdriver and so on and so forth, right? So 
teaching people how to build a ship is very important because otherwise there is no sailing possible, right? But uh, if it's only about that, then people lose the line of sight about why are we doing that in the first step, in the first step right? So if it's all about... Uh, you know, sales process and activity and operating rhythm uh, and how to hammer and so faster and all of that. And it's and, and you over index on execution, uh, not leaving enough space for uh, people, intelligence, creativity and quality. Uh, then what happens is that they lose the big dreams that we were all uh, supposed to achieve together. And uh, it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes a grinder uh, at the same time. It's super important being able to be to build the ship properly and fast uh, and build a ship which is going to resist the waves and the wind. Therefore, being amazing at qualifying and being a great, having a very strong understanding of a, 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 a playbook or a sales process which fits to your market, not that you've brought from another company and just take it and replicate whatever. Like at MongoDB, that would have been a disaster, right? We are in the open source business initially before being a SaaS company, uh, the sales process, we had to create and reinvent everything and fit it for our own needs and enable people around that. And that's very, very, very important, but there needs to be that, but not only that. Um, I guess that's, uh, I don't know if this was the sense of your question, Simon, but that's the best way I can, I can. The reason I'm, I'm just sorry, I elaborate a little on that. The reason I'm saying that is because I see also, um, I've got even examples in my team which uh, uh, created some uh, some issues. Um, you know, in the early days, you develop those leaders, you teach them how to qualify deals and use the sales process. And all of a sudden, what they do when they take this leadership job is to over-index around about that and grind their people into that. Uh, instead of remembering that their job, all those tools are there to help people being better and to develop them, not to inspect them. Not to, there's a dose of inspection in everything, but if the only reason why you build those playbooks is to inspect and and make people work faster, and it's a disaster, it's just a disaster. I wouldn't have taken it as a rep, and most of my leaders wouldn't have either, right? So, what could you do it to others? So, um, I guess there is a very thin line between building playbooks. Uh, and, you know, inspiring playbooks rather than enforcing playbooks. And there's a very thin line between these two things. I think there is a very thin line between uh, building a culture where, yeah, you do have a lot of processes, but because it's really about diagnosticking faster where the problems are and therefore being able to develop people faster, more systematically and more intelligently and push them in a better direction. And the flip side of that, which is, you know, I enforce the playbook just because as a leader, I need to feel better with myself because my people are doing things faster. Mm. So, so you mentioned about the fact that you're very aware of that fine line and, and you've spoken quite a lot about what some of the challenges are, but how are you trying to address that positively? So, so what are the things that you're getting your leaders to focus or your people to focus on, which helps you tackle that? Uh, well, I think the first, there are like two big aspects. I'm going to come back on that. The first one is developing the leaders very, very strongly because it's not like, you know, it's not like a, a bug in new leaders to go and over-index on the operating rhythm. It's a feature. I did it and many other leaders do it because that's the, what you know, right? So you default to that because it gives you security. But if you develop those leaders 
and make them so good at operating that they can step back and not think about it too much or see that operating rhythm and that series of tools like tools and not lacking any in mind. And therefore, they can turn their attention to the people that they have in their teams and use those tools to help the people. Uh, then you see a culture of coaching and development, which is very ingrained in the organization. Uh, and also you promote the people in these jobs, which have a passion for coaching. You can't be a good sales leader those days if you are not a great teacher or passionate about it. If you are not great at it, you will improve or passionate about coaching, which implies that you can have very tough conversations without destroying relationships and you find the right words, which implies that you understand the playbook so that you can diagnostic and help very practically developing those people. So all of that around developing those leaders properly uh, is obviously a huge amount of work, but also one of the biggest, most important aspects of, of what we can do. And the other one is to keep reminding people, why were we building this ship in the first hand? keep reminding them that one day we are going to be sailing on the ocean and it's going to be fun, it's going to be windy and sunny and, you know, we're going to enjoy the speed of the boat and we're going to feel safe into it, right? So that reminding of the vision on which we are embarked together and reinforcement of it uh, and therefore a sense of mission in the team, I think is really, really important. Amazing. I, I think... Um I think we've kind of reached a really interesting kind of stage in in this session because I think you know we, we've we've obviously come full circle. You're now kind of at MongoDB. We can really kind of see, you know, how you've evolved and how you've changed as a leader. Um, I, I suppose you know if there was kind of one big piece of advice that you were going to give to our, our our viewers and our listeners, you know. Is there anything else that you think is really, really important that you should share as a kind of a, a something that's really important to you that's really helped you other than kind of some of the things that we've covered so far? I think I would, uh, you know, if I would, another way to ask this question, I guess, is what a piece of advice would you give to uh, the Cedric of 25 years ago or 20 years ago, <laughs> right? That's another yep. advice. All that I will give my son for sure is to be, uh, you know, to have a huge sense of urgency to build a name for yourself but at the same time to be patient and to watch out for your ego. And uh, there is a, we are in an environment where you see a lot of, you know, obviously in inflation, you know, companies' evaluations are up to the roof. Everybody's, everybody looks at those few people which made a huge amount of money and everybody advertises those people. They need to understand that their career is going to unfold in the next, for the next 40 years, right? And this is not a normal state of things now. These waves are coming and going. They came in 2000, they came in 2008, and they went as well, right? And if you want to be consistently excellent at what you do and build long-term success, repeatable, scalable, not just, you know, short-term heat and I got lucky and, and move on, but long-term success, don't cut those corners. Uh, do your homework. Be patient about your homework. Join great leaders which are going to and companies which are going to develop you, which have built a culture of coaching and development, uh, which have the patience, which have the technology, so that you don't you know lose your face uh, on in the market or even your self confidence, by the way, which is very important, and uh, and be patient about that because if you do that consistently over time, it's going to pay off and. Um, and much bigger dividends than what you think. 
um, if you instead you start cutting corners and uh, you instead of focusing on the foundation, the fundamentals, uh, you uh, look for uh, quick successes, uh, which um, you know you're going to pay a price for that, uh, and your career will stall somewhere, and it's not going to be great, in my opinion. Absolutely amazing advice. Wise words. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic advice. Um, so Cedric, this is the point where we ask you the final question of the uh, of the session, which is, in your opinion, Cedric, does the hunter make the unicorn? Hundred percent, yes. Um, it's very difficult to build, and you know, some people will say, "Well, but you know, there's product-led growth companies and these new business models, which uh, will be a counter argument to that, right?" Uh, I am in the product-led growth companies. I'm part of building it uh, and a big one. Uh, we have a self-service business. We are obsessed about helping our customers onboarding without salespeople. Uh, we have inside salespeople. We have customer success teams, which are probably among the most sophisticated in the world. Uh, we have, you know, enterprise software sales in its pure 1999 kind of form. And uh, hunters make unicorns because it's a mindset. Even when you have a product-led growth company, it's 100% a mindset. Do you know what, Cedric? I think that's a fantastic answer, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, this is the point on the show where we reflect on what we've heard today, and I think uh, the reflection is quite, quite straightforward. Um, I, I think the big theme of everything we've heard is that you can't cut corners. Find a leader that's going to nurture you, someone that can guide you, someone that can give you the tool, someone that's going to let you fail, but be there by your side to help you grow and help you learn from those lessons. And you can't just skip the steps. You know, you have to, you have to believe in the process. You have to master the fundamentals. But in order to do that, Align to a business with a bigger purpose, with a mission, with a, with, with a view of kind of the long-term success, something with purpose, and, um, and, and, and just master those fundamentals. So, um, Cedric, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you. It's been truly, truly inspirational, thought-provoking, and we've, we've, we've enjoyed having you on the show immensely. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And thank you for the two of you for uh, having been patient with me. I know that uh, there will be a little bumps on the road to organize this call. Uh, <laughs> and you guys have been unbelievably resilient. And I really appreciate it. I think uh, I will be grateful for the time we spent together for a long time. Uh, very much appreciate It's great having you on the show finally, Cedric must say that the persistence has paid off it's been a fantastic <laughs> show and i think our listeners are going to absolutely love it so thanks ever so much for taking time to talk to us ciao right. so to our listeners and to our viewers we hope you've enjoyed today's session there's plenty of content available on our websites so do please check out so soap.com forward slash blog and uh, remember hunters are made are not found mm -hmm.